0: Hi, and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast looking at international politics from Berlin with me, Benjamin Tallis.
1: And me, Aaron Gash-Burnett. Join us for an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany.
0: Hello and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council, and together with my friend, the journalist Aaron Gash-Burnett, who specializes in German politics, we'll be looking at the world from Germany and looking at how Germany is seen
1: around the world. And hello from me. Now, we started off this season by really stressing that Germany's current Seitenwender, or its much heralded and indeed contested sea change in foreign policy is about a lot of things. It's about changes in mindset, about changes in how Germany relates to its partners. But today we're joined by some great guests to talk about something so fundamental to the site Seitenwende that it deserves its own dedicated episode early on in the season, and that's defence. Uh, ben, it may sound like an obvious question, but even in the context of wider security issues for Germany, defense is central right now. So why is it so fundamental?
0: Well, Aaron, it's, it's fundamental to Germany's change because Germany was so fundamentally deficient in this area. And that was a key thing that the country's leaders at last conceded in February last year after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Germany had long underinvested in its military, leaving it unable to really even defend itself, let alone play its full proper role in uh, NATO which is the country's key security uh, guarantee and the key shield for freedom and democracy in Europe. And so this led to a lot of accusations of uh, free riding and seemed indicative of the rather naive, irresponsible, and some would even say cynical approach that Germany had taken to geopolitics, claiming the moral high ground while failing to actually pony up and contribute to the defense of democracy, while at the same time indulging in trade with dictatorships that enriched and entrenched the enemies of freedom and of the West. Now, of course, Germany wasn't alone in doing this, But it perhaps pushed this approach further than others. And that's why getting defense right now is seen as a key barometer of Germany's change. So rethinking defense, in effect, means rethinking Germany. And it's a key indicator as to whether there's really a titan vendor or not. It's something that Germany's allies are watching like hawks, and increasingly hawkishly, given the geopolitical challenges that we collectively need to master. And I think there's increasingly little tolerance for German claims that the slow and stuttering progress in the field which we'll hear more about from our expert guests in the moment, can be put down to Germany's issues with its particular past. It's often something that's raised in this context, but I don't think it actually um, fully explains the problems Germany's having. Of course, it's important to emphasize that there was a change away from what was often called the Prussian militarism that was seen by many to have gone hand in glove with the world wars that Germany started in the 20th century and which it devastatingly lost after wreaking devastation and committing genocide on an industrial scale. But as we'll talk a bit more about later, in the Cold War, actually, Germany played a massive military role as a key contributor to NATO, as a, as its key frontline state. And the problem has really come after the Cold War, and especially in the last 20 years.
1: Thanks very much, Ben. And to discuss the details of that, and to put it all into context, we're thrilled to have such a fantastic uh, lineup of guests with us today. We're joined this episode by Ben Hodges. He is the former commanding general for the US Army in Europe, and currently works As a senior advisor to Human Rights First. He's been a prominent expert commentator on Russia's war against Ukraine and Ukraine's fight for freedom. You can find his contributions in think tanks and media across Europe and the US. We also have with us Eileen Matla. She is a research fellow at the Center for Security and Defense here at the German Council on Foreign Relations. And finally, Gustav Gressel. Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, focusing on defense and security policy. Thank you all very much for joining us today.
0: Yeah, we're delighted to have you here. And much like with Ben, you can find Gustav and Eileen's contributions across media around Europe in English and in German, um, and in publications with our respective think tanks. Uh, So do look them up. Um, Ben, Eileen, Gustav, hello and good evening.
1: I'd like to start with... you may know him on Twitter as General Ben, for our listeners here first. Uh, while Germany has this internal debate and process going on uh, around defense, around Venda, its allies clearly expect more of it, uh, perhaps in a way that might have shocked some Germans in the past, uh, who were used to the idea that NATO was supposed to, as the old quote goes, keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down— Uh, What are the expectations Germany's allies now have of Germany when it comes to defense?
2: Well, look, uh, my president uh, reached out uh, from day one when he took office, President Biden, to try and repair the damage uh, that was done to the German-American relationship by the previous president, Donald Trump, uh, because he knew that we would need Germany as a partner, as our most important ally in Europe. For all that we needed to do in terms of competition with Russia and, and China and elsewhere, and of course Germany being the uh, frankly the richest country in Europe um, and having the the economic power, um, we had high ex- have high expectations of our German ally within the European Union as well as within NATO. And I think that um, we remember. I'm old enough to remember having been a lieutenant stationed in Germany in 1981. Uh, the Bundeswehr had like 12 divisions back then. I mean, it was enormous. It was the best army in Europe. It was better than what we had in terms of equipment. Um, and so I I don't accept, and I think most older people don't accept this notion that somehow Germany, you know, uh, because of our past, we can't have a big military because I saw it up close for almost more than 40 years during the Cold War, what the German Bundeswehr had and what germans were willing to pay for defense so this is about political will and frankly most germans here where i live in frankfurt they don't they don't see the threat so why should they pay for a lot of defense
1: that's uh, an interesting point i think and something that we often miss uh when we talk about uh, german memory culture when it comes to uh, defense the time period that you're referring to uh back during the cold war we saw German defense budgets that were 2 or even 3% of GDP uh, decades ago. So that's something that's often missed that I would like to just make sure that we highlight. Uh, there, is, there was a time when we had that kind of spending that we're looking at um, requests for now.
0: That's right. I mean, you had half a million uh, people under arms, up to 5,000 tanks in the German army at the time. This was a huge machine, as you say, Ben. But I'm just picking up on what you said uh, there. Most people in Frankfurt don't see the threat, so they don't see the need.
2: Why Why is that, do you think? Um, it comes down to political will and some political courage by the leadership, the civilian leadership of, of any nation to, to have to explain to their population, look, we're facing threats, there's challenges. You're gonna to have to pay for this, um, you're, but the price of deterrence is much less than the price of failed deterrence. But that would require German leaders to have to acknowledge Russia is a threat, China is a threat. And that runs counter to, I think, a lot of German uh, economic interests and other other different reasons. So it would really take um, political courage to tell the people of Germany, look, uh, we can do trade with China. We can do trade with Russia. We want to, but we have to acknowledge that they're a threat. And they, in um, in order to maintain the international rules based order from which Germany has benefited almost more than any other country on the planet, except maybe the United States, you have to defend that.
3: Just to to add one thought uh, with uh, regards to threat perception or maybe the lack thereof, um, I totally agree with what Ben said. It's a matter of political leadership to explain to you know your respective population why defense why defense capabilities are necessary and what those defense capabilities are supposed to address. But I think and I think there is a bit of a glimmer of hope in my um, regard that since last February, the perception in Germany is changing. I wouldn't say it's a quick change. Um, and I wouldn't say that anything is written in stone yet. But if you look at some of the polls that have been conducted um, and surveys um, that have been conducted since last February, clearly there is a shift in um, in, in perception of how to, um, how to regard um, Russia. And clearly, the majority of Germans now regard Russia as a threat. Maybe it's not as palpable as um, in Poland or the Baltic states, but it has certainly changed um, when um, when compared to, um, to to the time you know previous to um, to the beginning of Russia's attack on Ukraine.
1: And some of those polls have been quite um, clear in terms of that shift. In terms of even uh, the German public's attitudes on weapon deliveries, um, on threat perception. I mean, before. Uh, the war started in February 2022, I remember one particular poll which showed that Germans um, were 73% against uh, weapon deliveries of any sort to Ukraine at all. And uh, that's quite different, I think, in terms of what we're seeing uh, recent polls um, say in terms of how much the, the general public's attitude has changed. It seems that perhaps leadership isn't always uh, accepting that uh, public attitudes have indeed changed in certain re- in certain regards uh, what would you make of that one thing is the threat perception
4: is Russia a threat is china a threat and that was a painful discussion some years ago uh, and yes um uh, your thought that it's changing and actually it's changing dramatically with every picture coming out of ukraine uh, the, the other problem is that what do we do about the threat uh, and here, if you look into the narrative, how uh, the end of the Cold War is told or perceived by most Germans, and by Germans, this is a very distinct time everybody can remember and everybody has memories about because it was reunification, uh, introduction of a different currency, uh, uh, economic. For some, it's shock; for some, it's liberation. But it was a very sort of intensive uh, debate that is clearly defines the current generation's mood Uh, but if you see how people um, think that it came about then it was about monday protests about gorbachev about kohl's wisdom uh, whatever uh, oice ostpolitik you get a lot of narratives they're all different but none of them is well afghanistan and deterrence and nato's military efficiency kicked the russians economically out of the race, none. This is what you certainly won't hear from any of the Germans. And that's a part of the problem. Um, while for, for a lot of Eastern Europeans, for other West, for the French, for example, uh, their contribution to NATO or the sort of the military superiority of the West was part of the solution. For like 99% of the German, it wasn't, although it was. So of course, they see now Russia as a threat. China is behaving like it shouldn't. Um, so we should, you know, throw some human rights activists at them or engage in dialogue or whatever, whatever is seen as a recipe, but the military doesn't come to their mind. And I think that's that's a problem how sort of the last 40 years, sort of the 80s leading up to the collapse of the communist bloc are told, are perceived in Germany, uh, rather than sort of people want to close up to Putin or want to sell something to the Chinese. That's,
1: yeah, these people exist as well, but actually don't dominate the public discourse. You will often hear in sections of German public debate as well, I think, that uh, policies like Ostpolitik, this was uh, Chancellor Willy Brandt's uh, way of engaging uh, with the Soviet Union rather than um, having a policy of of, of confrontation. Uh, A lot of uh, German public thought holds that this uh, was instrumental in the fall of the Berlin Wall, for example, and in the end of the Cold War. But what seems to be forgotten Uh, among this discussion is that Ostpolitik was uh, conducted, I suppose, from a position of military strength uh, back when Germany was spending, uh, again, as we said before, two to three percent of its GDP on defense, much more than today.
0: Let me jump in on that for just a second, Aaron, because also it was at a time when Germany was meeting the expectations of its allies. When it was actually playing its part in the military alliance, which allowed it to also then a certain freedom to act in Ostpolitik, which was quite a controversial policy for some other allies at the time, but because it was pulling its weight in NATO, then they could do this. But coming back to those expectations for a second to, to, to each of you, what is it that Germany's allies would really want Germany to do? Ben, you spoke about this large economic might that Germany has. So what should that deliver?
2: First of all, the, the, the German Bundeswehr um, has to rediscover the culture of readiness that it had back when it was at its peak. Uh, the senior leaders, the general officers in charge of the Bundeswehr now, these guys grew up in that army. They, they knew, they still know how to do maintenance on tanks. They know how to repair their submarines. They, they understand what's required. But um, the ministry over the last probably 30 years gradually eroded uh, what was needed to have this culture of readiness, meaning equipment works, units are trained, you have the stuff you need, uh, which is an important part of deterrence or obstructing. And so um, that should be the the first sentence out of the mouth of uh, the Fratatigons Minister Pistorius. Every time he speaks anywhere, job one, readiness. We have to be ready to do our job. Otherwise you invite um, you invite aggression this this war in Ukraine right now is the is what failed deterrence looks like the Russians were sure we were not ready and we would not stay together and so they attacked well
3: in terms of expectations on part of Germany's allies I think it's it's pretty clear that most European allies, but also um, our transatlantic um, allies, especially the United States, um, expect, uh, expect Germany to step up its game, but not uh, in my um, interpretation, at least not since um, last year only, but already um, since 2014, to be frank. I mean, already in 2014, obviously, with the annexation, the illegal annexation of Crimea and the beginning of the war against Ukraine um, uh, on part of Russia, um, a sort of um, a spotlight was um, put on, on Germany to um, to do more, to contribute more to European defense. And as a matter of fact, now everyone is talking about Zeitenwende. Rightly so. Back then, we also had um, you know sort of a you know um, grand words that were spoken by uh, by a, by a trio of um, German um, leaders back then, um, uh, sort of in, um, encapsulated in the so called Munich um, consensus. And, um, and that consensus um, rightly so in my mind um, sort of invoked expectations on part of um, of Germany's allies to do more since 2014 some things have improved but not um, you know by any means on the scale that uh, that allies have expected Germany to step up its game. and um, so it's I think if, if Germany were to fail meeting those expectations, that were um, invoked in 2014. And now again in 2022, I think Germany would really lose its reputation as a reliable ally.
0: Yes, yeah, So stop the free riding live up to your economic potential, putting that into military terms, contribute to the security order that you've benefited from so much in order to make sure it's, it's uh, sustained. And as Ben said, to be ready to do that, to actually be ready to go. Uh, interesting we heard from about Boris Pistorius as well, because he's someone who's communicated differently on this, and someone who's drawn on his own Cold War experience in much the same way Ben you were talking about there. He continually mentions this, this experience of being in a frontline state and understanding what that meant. Gustav, what's changed there, and why isn't that kind of rhetoric um, carried through by other actors in German politics?
4: That's a very good question. Boris Pistorius is... is, uh leading the poll since month as the most popular politician um and that's the first time in my entire lifetime and i'm you see i'm i'm turning into cemetery blonde as uh, (laughs) we say in austria uh that is actually a long lifetime that a minister of defense in germany is the most popular politician um that never happened by a lot as well uh, but but sort of on expectations and and that runs to 2014 uh Yeah, I think there's a perception gap instead of what Zeitemende means, what Sondervermögen, sort of this 100 billion special budget means and why sort of Germans are a bit astonished why this is not much more sort of receiving more gratitude abroad than it should be uh, domestically. Well, the thing is, um, uh, when we turn back the clock of time, uh, 2014, we had the Wales Summit uh, in NATO, uh, 2016, the Warsaw Summit. And between that, we had a crazy stuff called integrated force planning. So for... uh, bunch of generals, like Ben did this in his past days, uh, sat together and kind of hacked out what the Russians had, how quick they would come, uh, how a crisis might develop and what kind of military capabilities and means each of the countries would have to um, develop and assign to NATO in order to make deterrence work. And Germany has promised um, quite some punch there. I mean, Germany, and that was the then-Chancellor Merkel and her then-Defense Minister uh, Ursula von der Leyen, who promised to have one division high ready by twenty four after 2014, so next uh, uh, year, 2025. Uh, a Bundeswehr that is in total a three-division-sized army so that you can have one of those divisions at higher status of readiness uh, all the time. To have three complete fighter wings, uh, one of them is specialized on uh, fighting uh, enemy uh Air defense assets, the, the successor of the ECR tornadoes, you know, to suppress um, uh, 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 at the time Soviet and now Russian long-range air defense missiles that would threaten uh, NATO air operations in the Baltic and, and in Poland. Uh, you would have that dual-use capability, uh, etc. All that was promised, but it was never budgeted. Uh, what was promised in 2014 to 2016 would have taken a annual um defense budget of roughly 65 billion uh, euros that wasn't two percent but it was bigger than the 42 to 51 billion that germany got and so the 100 billion Zeitenwende budget actually is sort of the the thing that we have promised but not delivered stacked together in one big bunch and then sort of put it on the on the table um so of course, in Germany, this is seen as oh, oh, we did such a good progress, and sort of this was the breakthrough, and we we had a a, a, a change of tides, etc. Abroad, it was seen ah, you so you finally want to actually budget your promises. There's a huge perception gap. And plus the problem is, of course, we now have the Sondervermögen, but all the stuff that we buy actually needs to be operated and they will have operating costs. And nobody has budgeted the operating costs because now we kind of, we do budget tricks and say, yeah, for the sake of 2%, uh, if we include the aid to Ukraine, which is good, uh, if we include pensions for all the NVA officers, which is like a f- eh, wacky, uh, but if you include all these kind of things that somebody else in NATO includes into his defense budget, we get, and the Sondervermögen, we get the 2%. The problem is 2% is a nice catchword, but actually it is about force planning. Germany has taken on commitments in the common defense, in the common deterrence for all of Europe. Uh, and it doesn't budget them, it doesn't finance them, it has promised them, but it doesn't finance them. And that's the thing that the whole 2% debate really comes about. If if Germany would live up to all its promises with, I don't know, 1.8% of GDP for defense, people won't make a big fuss. If they wouldn't live up to it, even if they spend more, that's up to German efficiency, they will make a fuss because the common defense and deterrence depends on countries doing their assigned jobs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you're not going to deter anyone, let alone the Russians with an accounting fix.
4: Yeah. And the Russians, I mean, they still have intelligence. So you can assume they know our readiness. Um, uh, Our politicians sometimes might not know, but the Russians will.
0: It raises what I think is a really interesting point about Germany's self-image, as you say, compared to the perception abroad, which is one of the key things we're trying to understand better through this series of, of podcasts. Whereas it seems as though this year Olaf Scholz has tried to fall back on what he considers tried and trusted branding for Germany as responsible, trustworthy, and so on. Yet you've pointed very well to this track record of being exactly the opposite, in fact, of saying that uh, Germany will deliver on defence spending. It doesn't repeatedly, even now under some of the most extreme circumstances we've seen in Europe for for many years, still there is reluctance to this. And now on top of that, we've seen the failure even to meet the 2% pledge uh, we've seen this being dropped by the chancellery and by the government. Um, what's what's going on with that?
4: It is hard to turn around budgets that are bogged down by a lot of old debt and by other skyrocketing costs. We have the Social Democratic Party that want to sort of get beyond a hard sphere and reform and expand the welfare state. Then we have the Green Party that wants to finance and speed up the ecologic and economic transition towards a carbon-free economy. That's also going to cost. And then you have the free Democrats that want to do um, tax reforms and tax te- tax cuts. But of course, um, if, if that is a budget reality that hits you and that constrains you domestically, just please don't make big promises and big speeches abroad, because then you will dig your dig a grave to your credibility and i think a lot of a lot of people have some kind of understanding for the problems germany is in with a lot of transitions no
0: absolutely and these these are common questions as you said that are faced by democracies around the world who are facing multiple different transitions they have to master at one time ecological technological geoeconomic but also geopolitical ben um you mentioned before that the cost of failed deterrence is higher than the cost of deterrence at the time. So is this a false economy actually cutting back on defense at the moment? And why, why is that?
2: I think in every country, including the United States, people would rather spend money on schools and, you know, improving uh, uh, medical care and, and infrastructure. Of course we do. Um, but in, investing in defense does not mean you can't do those other things. Uh, you have to invest in defense if you want to be able to have a uh, prosperous, safe, secure uh, country. But I think about the 2% thing, um, that that is a metric, but too much attention was focused on it. And Gus just did a fantastic job kind of laying out why it's inadequate. It, uh, but yet it was, it, it was something that every politician could grab a hold of and that you could aim for. And of course, nations... There are some rules in NATO for how you do the accounting, but there's still a lot of variation and uh, things like pensions are counted in there that don't contribute a dot to uh, readiness or, or warfighting capability. But, you know, as I thought about Germany, I said, what could Germany do? Because I was so worried about what my former president was doing to the relationship. And I was looking for ways. How could how could Germany do? come up with ways that are acceptable here that would uh, move the needle towards 2%, what, what do we really need? And fortunately, now with the Vilnius summit, one of the outcomes of this was an agreement on actual plans for the SACUR, where uh, NATO finally has war plans for the defense of NATO's eastern flank. From war plans come requirements. So Germany, number one, we talked about readiness, the second thing is Germany has to have the force structure necessary to carry out its part of all the NATO plans. I mean that's that's your baseline, and Gus alluded to that a little bit earlier. But that can can the Bundeswehr meet all of its NATO requirements plus whatever Germany might need for its own uh, defense that's not directly related to NATO? And then there's three things that um, I think are extremely important and. Would be welcome inside Germany by most Germans. Number one, mobility. Um, Most of NATO is going to have to transit Germany to get to the fight or to be able to demonstrate to the Russians that we can move as fast or faster than they can as part of deterrence. You have to do it during peacetime conditions. And I will tell you, it is very difficult for uh, NATO units to move across Germany for a variety of reasons. Part of it is Uh, legal reasons, even going from one Bundesland to the next, uh, but also uh, rail. Deutsche Bahn only has enough capacity to move one and a half armor brigades in Europe simultaneously. That's any flavor, not German, not American, any type. I mean, that's a pitifully small uh, capacity. So, ben, investing... ben. for our
0: for our non-expert or non non-military expert audience, how much is in a brigade? That could there be moved, and how much as a percentage of total is that?
2: Yeah. Thank you. So, an armored brigade, for example, will have typically about eighty-five Abrams tanks, a, as an example. So, in terms of total armored vehicles that would be in an armored armored brigade, you're looking at close to three hundred and fifty four hundred armored vehicles. That you don't want to have moved down the highway, you want to put them on the train uh, to to move much more quickly and without you know tearing up the highway. So um, one and a half armor brigades—that's you know we're talking about ten percent of what would be needed in most of the NATO um, plans. Let's just say, and that's that's a very rough ballpark figure. So we're nowhere close. And I always thought, man, if if Germany could put uh, get credit for investing in improving dual use transportation capability. I mean, we do that in the US. We pay a ton of money to civilian airlines for for the capability of them having to stop what they're doing and immediately pick up, do military transport, okay? We pay for that as an insurance, if you will. The second thing is host nation support. Uh, there are going to be tens of thousands of troops from multiple countries that will have to pass through or stay in Germany at some point. So, you know, the the place, the all the commodities that would be needed, uh, Germany is going to have an important host nation support role. And then finally, and I like what Chancellor Schultz offered about a year ago, um, we see that Russians will use multi-million dollar precision weapons to hit apartment buildings or, or shopping centers. So the when I saw that, I thought, oh, my God, the requirement for integrated air and missile defense is about 100 times more than what I had thought it was. I used to think in terms of we've got to protect Bremerhaven, we've got to protect Ramstein, you know, places like that. There's there's half a billion European citizens that have got to be protected now. We, we do not have enough uh, to protect them.
1: Anyone familiar with Deutsche Bahn uh, in the room? Uh, it will probably arrive late anyway.
2: Or <laughs>
0: well, this is what I was going to say, Aaron. Before we go to Eileen, which we will in a second, uh, uh, infrastructure lacking, excessive bureaucracy... Lack of forward planning. These are not things that are limited to the field Ben was just talking about. <laughs> to anyone uh, who's familiar with living in Germany, so it seems to be that there's some wider societal problems that then have particular manifestations in this field.
1: And yeah, and certainly in train infrastructure is one of them. I'd like to come uh, to you, uh, Island, quickly because uh, very quickly about a uh, something that Ben actually said earlier which uh, was uh, Germany is our most important ally in Europe. And those of us who remember uh, the Cold War think back to, for example, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher of the UK uh, and sort of to hear you say Germany is our most important ally in Europe. But what I'd like to ask is whether Germany necessarily understands uh, that that is the way that it is thought of now. Uh, Is it comfortable with knowing that or does it like to pretend that it doesn't know this is that part of why it's so hard to meet the expectations that allies might have of germany
3: that's a very um, good question and i do not have a definitive answer to that my my guess is that at least in some uh, in some parts of of, of germany's political el- political elites it is, they're slowly realizing and it's slowly dawning on them that Germany really has to sort of follow up its rhetoric by actions and that it will not suffice to, to promise a Munich consensus, a Zeitenwende or promise a Sondervermögen, but rather that it's about, you know, not just um, making big announcements, but actually following through. I think the German public, in some respects, um, is practicing a bit faster and is ahead of some of um, Germany's political elites. All German um, politicians, there are some, you know, in in various parties who for years have um, have been Talking and have been trying to um, to, to raise awareness of um, not only the threat um, emanating from Russia but the general need for a you know for a capable um, Bundeswehr, for example. But um, it was a bit of a niche um, topic. So I think again there is some um, some progress in the making, but I th- I still think that Germany. As a whole, as a society, hasn't fully grasped the magnitude of what allies are expecting from the country. What Olaf Scholz, um, I believe, it was in a guest commentary for the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, one of the major leading um, daily newspapers in Germany, when sometime last year he he wrote about a leadership um, and translate or his understanding, I believe, of a leadership um, means. Zusammenführen, which translated um, into English means bringing together and leading together, which I think is quite telling um, um, of his understanding of what leadership um, actually means. He's really, he's really keen on never even coming across as wanting to go it alone which I think Germany never at any point um, did or even alluded um, to doing. I think it's rather um, the opposite. It's really, it's so sort of focused on making sure that uh, it has all its allies on board that sometimes it forgets that those, you know, very allies expect Germany to take the lead. So, which is really a bit of a paradox. Interestingly, um, illustrated by when Germany um, was really um, struggling to agree to send um, leopard to tank uh, leopard um, tanks to um, to Ukraine earlier in um, in January when it was sort of pointing fingers um, at the US and using the US as an excuse um, to to not um, make that decision and then finally only after um, the u.s sort of reluctantly agreed to send its own main battle tank um, system Germany um, agreed to to, um, to follow suit so I think it's it's really a combination of of, um, of factors that that lead Germany to to not fully live up to its potential, but also to to the expectations that la- um, that allies have of Germany.
0: Eileen, that's such an important point, and it's one one that uh, Roderick Parks and I tried to bring out in our recent piece on Germany as a team power. Exactly understanding this, so building from uh, Zusammenführung this collective leadership or together leadership, joint leadership or so on, to see what's expected there and to understand that you can have diffuse leadership. You can let others take the lead or set the pace at times. That's part of being a good team leader. But sometimes you have to bear the responsibility too. And this, this is interesting if we think about one of the key team players not living up to the rules that it had agreed to play by. Exactly that uh, NATO 2% commitment, whatever the military value of that, that is what had been politically agreed. And so not living up to that, again, comes back to show this, this perceived lack of reliability. But another thing we tried to highlight was really that this um, image that Scholz tries to protect of thinking things through for the whole alliance is really undermined by the fact that German leadership is not taking on board the views of allies properly. Many, many allies in Central Eastern Europe, for example, still don't feel listened to now, even after all that's gone on in the last 18 months. So I'd be very interested to hear in a second, uh, Gustav, from you about that. But Ben, I want to push this point on the tanks, on the leopards, uh, which so many of us were involved in the, the push to get over the line. And it really did seem as though Schultz was not going to walk alone on this one, um, and so went to Washington to, to demand that they joined in. What then does Germany expect of the US, and is that reasonable?
2: You know my statement earlier that Germany is our uh, most important ally. I mean that, uh, but that doesn't mean that they're our favorite allies. That <laughs> 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 there are times when there is great frustration uh, about, uh, and, and it's a political problem too because a lot of Americans they they're like, hey, what the hell's going on? Why are we doing all this? Why do we have a fifty, a hundred thousand U.S. troops living in Europe, mostly stationed in Germany, and and then they hear about all the problems. So this this creates a political problem on the on the American side and sometimes people like Trump will exploit it. Others like the current president will try to uh, address it and fix it. Uh I was uh, uh our, our current administration deserves a lot of credit for keeping 50 nations moving together for sure the Kremlin never dreamed in a thousand years that there would still be 50 nations working together, including Germany as a number two or three contributor for Ukraine. I no way they ever anticipated that. But uh our president my president, our administration has failed in the critical task of identifying what is our strategic objective. What is the what is the purpose? What why are we spending 42 billion dollars? Uh at least that's how much has been earmarked or set aside. It hadn't all been spent, by the way. Uh, but that's That's a huge amount of of, uh, investment. For what? Of course, he should say, my president should say, we want Ukraine to win. We want them to eject Russia back to the 1991 uh, border. That's what victory looks like. And we're going to do everything necessary. And if he did that, then you would hear none of these ridiculous uh, excuses about how much uh, gas a Abrams tank burns. I heard so much negative commentary from the Pentagon about Abrams tanks. I thought, well, why the hell do we have 4,000 of them? I mean, there's if they're that bad. And of course, these were excuses because they didn't want to do it. Just like now, they say we don't have uh, we don't have enough attackums. And and by the way, we're not sure they'll work. And we're worried the the Ukrainians will use them against Russian targets inside of Russia. And they don't really need them anyway. So what you get, like from kids, a whole bunch of excuses why they didn't do something. And that's what they are. They're excuses. So my point is Germany hides behind the U.S. on the tank issue. And they're doing it now uh, with Taurus because the United States won't provide ATACMS. And this is where American leadership is failing here. Uh, That doesn't mean the U.S. has to do everything. But in a way, I don't like it, but I can almost understand Germany saying, well, wait a minute. U.S. is not taking the full risk. Why should we? Because, you know, Germany will see that they have uh, that you have different vulnerabilities that the U.S. doesn't worry about it. I hear it from German friends every now and then, huh, you talk a big game, you know, the U.S. is not going to get hit. We're the ones that'll get hit. And then, of course, I remind them that I live in Frankfurt, right? (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's, That's not Frankfurt, Kentucky, just to be clear, right? This excuse that I think is made in Berlin quite often that the U.S. isn't doing it, therefore we shouldn't, is to really misunderstand the respective roles of the two countries. And as your German friend said to you, um, Indeed, we here are closer in the firing line. So actually we here should be doing more to step up. It's a problem that's closer to us. The German government in its new national security strategy has said they have a special responsibility for European security. And so to not understand that that actually might mean going ahead of the US on this, as some of the Baltic states have perhaps understood, it seems to me a bit of a problem and to indicate the lack of will that again we come back to. Gustav, what what do you think of that? And is um, the German government listening to allies in Central Eastern Europe?
4: Well, it depends on whom you're talking to in the government. Um, But... The, the, the problem the sort of the biggest problem i have with this this kind of you do that and i would deliver that is that uh our countries across europe and then across the atlantic are actually good at doing different things for ukraine differently because for example the leopard 2 is a widely available tank um it's a tank that's still being produced uh so you if the German government would have put an effort into it and we can discuss why it didn't or um, actually you can generate it in larger numbers. F-16s are there for the same reasons. I mean, it's not the most practical airplane for Ukraine, um, but it's a plane that you have in the largest numbers. So you, if you scratch something together, you get most of it. And if, you know, if if the Germans are afraid that Leopard 2s that can shoot like four kilometers wide uh, will bring them into World War three. um then Norway must be a mighty nuclear power to give F sixteen to um, uh, to Ukraine because they have a slightly larger range and can do much more nasty things too. And so there must be a superpower as well. Um, I mean, just kidding. Now the problem is you need to have division of labor. I mean, it's uh, if you, if you conduct this model like I only give sort of an appropriate uh, share in weapon category X. Um, And only do so if another country does so, then we will probably have to enforce operating five different types of aircraft on the poor Ukrainian Air Force. Instead of, you know, stopping this nonsense and say, okay, where are we good in our R&D, in our defense industrial base? What are we producing Uh, and what is there shared with allies so we can can for bigger numbers. The things that you know, you operate, you produce, you can train properly people on, etc., and have a division of labor. I think this 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 entire approach. I only do this if you do that. Uh, is is ridiculous? From you know, from I mean, Ukrainians must be fr- they are frustrated from from this kind of stuff because they in in none of the in none of the classes actually get the numbers they really need. But for the big new stuff, um, sometimes it's it's just it's just childish. And and on risk sharing, I mean, the Baltic countries have given up. Um, almost all of their anti-tank guided but missiles, most of their Stingers, Groms, whatever, you know, they're almost naked militarily, and they're uh, pretty freaking close to Russia. Um, so, and they are not big, and they don't have nukes themselves. Uh, and they trust in, in NATO Article Five, and you know, and that that that's my second thing psychologically. What what does this tell us? You know, if you have small Estonians and Lithuanians trusting Article Five more than an eighty-two million uh, inhabited country with a, a well, not the most robust defensive industrial base, but still bigger than the Estonians, um, that 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 gives bad signals because you know we we are relaxed we are in the rear we have article five if the russians would take the risk and attack germany they would pretty sure strike at have to strike at one american base because they are pretty close to the german bases and you can't isolate a, a an attack on germany from an attack on u.s assets in germany um so uh i i i mean these are really things that yeah they look nice on a tv talk show but they have zero substance
1: um, I'd like to ask quickly uh, a little bit about what German multilateralism, especially when it comes to defense, uh, actually means. And I'm struck a little bit by uh, something that uh, Eilen said earlier. Um, it reminded me of Schultz's uh, famous or perhaps infamous phrase, "keine Alleingänge, uh, which of course uh, means not going it alone. Yet when it comes to that whole uh, affair with sending leopards for Abrams, you could be forgiven for looking at it and thinking, kind of, Alleingange really means not without the U.S. It doesn't actually mean not alone. It just, uh, to what sense uh, is the German security establishment basically just um, kind of not saying the quiet part out loud where, you know, the U.S. is the only country that matters when it comes to uh, defence?
3: I think your interpretation is exactly right when I think it, it's very obvious that when Schultz is talking about kind of a line and not wanting to go it alone, he is talking about or what he actually means is to be in lockstep with Joe Biden at all times. I think Schultz was, I don't know if willingly or unwillingly was undermining Article 5 um, of NATO because he, um, when he demanded to be um, to be in lockstep with the US, when he demanded that he would only um, agree to send those um, tanks, um, if the US would do the same and would follow suit, he was basically saying, well, we're not willing to take that risk um, on our own, we only are willing to bear that risk if the US is by our side. But um, obviously, I mean, if you believe in the solidity of Article 5, then the US will be um, by our side no matter what. Well, he didn't exactly trust in the solidity of of Article Five being really honoured by the US uh, if push came to shove, and that I think is is a bit troublesome. If you at the same time um, read what German you know German officials say about NATO, you know NATO being the cornerstone of European um, and um, of Germany's security, deterrence, and defence, I would hope that you know those those same officials also believe in in the solicitude of, um, of NATO and Article 5.
1: I think sometimes when we discuss Article 5, particularly in Germany, sometimes I feel like our debate forgets the fact that Article 5 binds everybody, not just the US. It is not, you know, an attack on one is an attack on the US, but an attack on one is an attack on all. Uh, so it binds Germany just as much. But um, I'd like to come back quickly to uh, Ben here um, and Ireland as well. Um, should Germany be prepared to go without the US if it's acting with other allies that are not the US? Should it be prepared to take that sort of uh, leadership role? But uh, how would the US react um, if it did so?
2: So first of all, Germans have to regain trust and confidence in themselves. Uh, I think so much of this is Uh, Germans, some Germans worry that they'll slide back into the 1930s. Uh, I mean, if it happened once, it could happen again. Certainly, it feels in some ways that's happening in the United States. So I think, you know, uh, restoring confidence in themselves and in the strength of their democracy um, and in their own people uh, would be an important step. Secondly, I say this as a, an outsider an American who uh lives in Germany. You know, Germany has based its future on two pillars. Economic on the EU and and its d- democratic institutions and security is based on NATO. So, um it's in the interest of Germany that the United States remains committed here and I think um That means that Germany has to be seen as a viable, reliable ally that that's if you want the United States to to still be um, committed. Now, um, I think that there will probably be some I, I, I hear this criticism every now and then that, okay, you guys don't really want us to to start doing all these things because then you'll lose control. Okay, and uh, it, it maybe there might be some people that will be able to start getting a little uneasy. I don't think so. I mean, the whole strategic autonomy nonsense uh, that that never went anywhere because nobody could define what it actually meant, and it was not going to increase spending one euro. Germany should feel confident as the most powerful nation on the continent um, to to do what's in the best interest of itself and of its neighbors. And every now and then somebody will say, oh, you know, our, our neighbors would not be happy if we go to 2%. <laughs> I, I hear almost nobody from Poland or France
0: say that. I agree very much with your analysis there. And it's even 10 years ago or 12 years ago now, it was Radek Sikorski, the then uh, Polish foreign minister, who said we fear German inaction much more than we fear German power. Right. And so much has changed since then to only make that more the, more the case. Um, but interesting, you said it's about German belief in themselves. And as I think there's a lot of questions among allies as to what extent Germany would actually stand up in an Article 5 situation. And is this questions around deterrence and around German misunderstandings of that or lack of faith in that, is that actually indicative of a lack of faith in themselves to do this?
2: Well, there was a poll that came out, I guess, last year or the year before that more, more than 50% of Germans did not think that Germany should respond to an Article 5 situation uh somewhere else. So uh, now probably 85 uh, percent of Americans don't know what NATO stands for. So I'm not I'm not being critical of Germans. I'm just saying that does, I think, reveal a lack of confidence and understanding of you know what does it mean? I mean, Article five, I hear every now and then somebody will say this might trigger Article five. There is no trigger like a laser beam when you walk into a store that the doors automatically open up. Right. there there is nothing automatic or triggering about article 5 that is a political decision based on uh one nation telling the allies hey this is an armed attack against us and then there's a process and then everybody might agree yes you're right this is this meets the you know the threshold for article 5 good luck i mean there's you, you're not you don't have to you, you don't have to go send somebody now, the key is that um, our adversaries believe that if Estonia is attacked or Romania is attacked or Poland is attacked, that Germany, the U.S., Canada, U.K., France, <clears throat> everybody is going to show up in some way? And so, the best way to prevent a war from happening, which is what every German wants, is to make sure that nobody questions whether or not Germany would show up if there was a fight.
0: Exactly. That's it. And that's what seems to be the missing link sometimes in German political discourse and in the kind of discourse that we had from German leaders during the Cold War, from Helmut Schmidt, from Willy Brandt, who made it clear to their populations, that's how you deter.
3: Speaking to the point of why Germany is so so keen on um, on wanting to, to be in lockstep with the United States, it really shows how dependent not only Germany, but many other European allies are on the capabilities of the United States. One of the reasons why Germany is really um, keen on wanting to keep the United States on board is because it really doesn't have any other choice, at least um, you know for the time being and also in the midterm. And doesn't only apply to Germany, as I said, but also to other European allies. And obviously, that is a bit of a tricky situation. Um, I'm it by no means arguing in favor of strategic autonomy, but at least... Capabilities to to act either on part of Germany or, um, or obviously on part of the Europeans, if the United States decided, um, you know, in whatever circumstances to to not take part in a um, in a military um, operation. It's not an either or. It's it's necessary to keep the United States um, invested in, and engaged in European defense, while at the same time providing and contributing the um the capabilities to to also lift some of the transatlantic burden and obviously that is uh, anything but new that goes back to the nato's founding years the idea of having fair burden sharing um equation um so i think regardless of who will win the race for um, for the white house next year other europeans should really be prepared to to step up their games because the strategic uh Priorities do not lie in Europe, but um, in the Asia-Pacific
4: um, theater.
0: Absolutely. So Gustav, is perhaps the best way to keep the US engaged, to make those commitments, to actually step up and increase European capabilities?
4: Absolutely. I mean, this this war in Ukraine should also give all these China prioritizers quite a lesson. Um, so we're, we're discussing artillery ammunition now, and we have... Now, thanks to uh, Biden's increased spending, which I highly appreciate, three lines for producing artillery ammunition in the U.S., we have 18 in Europe. Um, uh, altogether, these 18 produce uh, more than twice the outcome of what is now coming out of the U.S. Uh, and I didn't say this dismissive. That's good. Um, if, if there is the Great Pacific War, which I hope there will be not, but we can't be sure, um, the U.S. will also be happy to have, like Ukraine now or, and the U.S.'s allies, think of Australia, think of South Korea, uh, think of Taiwan, think of Japan, uh, A industrial hinterland that can produce this stuff at pace and uh, in, in, in large orders, or that has good stocks, which we didn't have, which the Americans had, which provided a critical buffer, especially at the beginning of the deliveries, um, to actually then supply the us because yeah of course we discussed now about a lot of high-tech stuff and drones but large wars always go into an nutritional phase and um, all sort of game-changing technologies never fully sort of provide you victory in, in one stroke um even though Blitzkrieg was fast, Blitzkrieg didn't didn't end the, the entire war in Germany's favor, thank God. Uh, and, and so if you always have this sort of long lasting attritional phases where how much can you muster, how much economy can you muster for your effort really matters. And so, so you know, despite the military effort going in the Pacific, having this joint um, space of armament procurement, R and D in defense to mutually support each other is critical important not only for the survival of NATO but also for the Pacific Alliance. Um, uh, and and I I think people telling otherwise haven't done the math on on tanks and how many need to be killed. Um, but I I wanted sort of to come back to Germany and why is Germany so low on trust uh, in itself in its political system? Um, I think there are a lot of interrelations with domestic crisis, search of the AfD, this kind of trustlessness. Um, uh, and I I then tried to sort of go back into intersections of German policy where the insecurity was also very high and people did didn't really know where to go. And then basically it was up to leadership. I mean, in the, in the first Weimar Republic, it was basically Friedrich Ebert who pulled things together and gave people a um, a positive lookout uh, and to make the political compromises to make that happen. Unfortunately, he died in 1925, and back after that it went down the drain. Um, in after the war, it was Adenauer and and, and Erhard. And, and, you know, it was a comprehensive, not just NATO rearmament. And there we have and we deterred the Soviets. It was a comprehensive package of EU integration, of social market economy, having sort of societally, economically, foreign policy wise, a, a positive vision about the future. Where do you want to go? And defense is a part of that. Armament, industrial policy is a part of that. What do you produce? How how much? That was part both of sort of military deterrence, rebuilding the Bundeswehr, but also rebuilding German industry, rebuilding German high tech. That was a very comprehensive understanding of where you want to go. Uh, what's the task of your country? What's sort of the mission for society? And the Social Democrats then in, in sort of in this iteration really carried that on. Um, if you take defense economy, there wasn't much Difference between between Adenauer and then Brandt or uh, and then Schmidt. They were on social policies, they had some, some some minor issues, but that was basically revolving about around the same vision. That is arguably harder now. Um I think sort of the, the most visionary party for the time being being the Greens. And that would lead need leaders of, of the parties to be uh, sort of to be more forward leaning, uh, to be more forward thinking, and and to lead also their country, and to show. People, what kind of future they envision, what comprehensive vision they have, and where to go, and that—that that is giving sort of purpose and mission. It's not sort of the the, the number of how satisfied we are or how much trust in our system we have. is not kind of equalizing how much social returns or whatever we get. It's how much do we trust our leaders that what we do now we give our kids a better future. And and I think this part of the the political debate is missing in an awful lot. Not only deterrence and defense and security and foreign policy, but in an awful lot of uh, awful lot of policy. Debates right now, and it's replaced by kind of uh, stereotypes and and dragging the other down. Um, Gustav,
0: you you sound it's sounding almost like a neo idealist there. I'm very happy to to hear it. This <laughs> uncancelling of the future and giving a positive vision. I couldn't agree more. And it seems so often people think of security in a in a negative term, but it actually has to be part of that positive vision. It's the
1: underpinning for the positive stuff that you can do. I'd like to come back actually to this point around deterrence and uh, about political leadership. We were talking towards the beginning of the show about uh, the kind of change we've seen in uh, the support among the German public, for even for things like weapon deliveries. But also um, I'm thinking of the poll that you were referencing, Ben, earlier about how uh, most Germans uh, would not uh, feel like it was an obligation for them to act in an Article 5 situation to help defend uh, a NATO ally. Uh, yet, I think that perhaps with uh, Ukraine, we're seeing a bit of a shift um, in public opinion. Perhaps there is more of an understanding of the value of deterrence. Uh, but, um, and we certainly see historically that the German public can be. Uh, with proper leadership, can be made to understand the value of that deterrence. We've talked about this in reference to leaders during the Cold War. Uh, But I'm not sure that we're seeing the political leadership uh, today necessarily capitalize on uh, that shift in public opinion uh, to basically forge ahead with a new uh, way of understanding deterrence or with new ways to actually put deterrence into practice. And how do they use that opportunity?
2: So step one is to talk to your population uh, like they are adults. Um, Stop um, worrying that, oh, my God, they might get upset. I I remember it wasn't that long ago when Karsten Breuer, who is now the good on Spectre de Bundeswehr, when he was responsible for uh, uh, homeland defense in Germany. And he told people, hey, you should everybody should go out and buy extra batteries, do some normal kind of things in case uh, the Russians, you know, turn off all of our energy somehow. And he was criticized for scaremongering and like, give me a break. Talk to your people like adults, um, like he was trying to do. Uh, all of us need uh, to work on our societal resilience. Uh, this is this is a word that gets used a lot, but I'd I look at the Finnish model. Um, I have Some of you know, uh, Mina Olander, she's an exceptional woman uh, and she's uh, from Finland and she said, you know why? Uh, And she had lived in Germany for a while. She said, Germans are terrified that something bad might happen. Finland, we're not scared because we know that the government, somebody has taken responsibility to make sure that we're prepared. And so that's why Finns, even though they have this enormous border with Russia and a history, they don't walk around terrified. They walk around prepared. There are more underground bunkers in Helsinki than there are people that live there. I mean, they have excess capacity. So um, I think uh, this is how uh, German leadership, I'm, I'm not saying Germans need to go and start building bunkers. I'm talking about having resilient institutions where people trust, they, they trust their their voting, they trust their courts, they trust their uh, their journalists. I think we have to all live up to our own talking points. I mean, people are getting a little tired of having the U.S. point the finger and say, you need to be more democratic or whatever, like, give me, give me a break. So all of us need to live up to our talking points. And then finally, you know, I, I noticed that when Germany in 2000, after the NATO summit in Warsaw in 2014 made the decision to be the lead nation for enhanced forward presence in Lithuania, was not a peep. Uh, And then the decision was made, uh, announced here not too long ago, we're going to make it a permanent brigade. Not a peep. The fact that Germany is the number two contributor, you don't don't see people uh, walking around with tin hats or or, uh, complaining or protesting. So I think Germans actually uh, are willing to do what's necessary. You know, back before this past winter, um, I had some friends that were like, oh, my God, Oma is going to freeze in her apartment. The Russians are going to cut off all our gas. And then the government went about getting extra gas. And the, and the whole attitude changed from instead of uh, worrying about uh, freezing, it was like, hey, why is your thermostat so high?
1: The German brigade to Lithuania. Aylan, uh, how significant is that uh, brigade? And when might it happen?
3: I think it's quite significant for Germany to have made that announcement. to have made that decision. There are also reports coming out of Lithuania that it will take until two thousand twenty six until the um, entire and proper infrastructure will be in place. But I think it is really that is a um, an example of of leadership in my mind. Deciding to to go ahead. What Ben also um, you know rightly pointed out. German elites german lawmakers do have to talk much more about what um, why secu- why we need um armed forces what, um, what what security means what deterrence means but it's also been my experience um that people are not dumb people do understand if you have good arguments people will respond to those arguments you know for the past decades the elites didn't see any um any need to engage the public um on those topics
1: In fact, sometimes the public is a bit ahead of the elites here occasionally.
4: Yeah, I I fully fall in line with with, uh, previous speakers. Um, Also, we shouldn't go hysteric and ballistic at at each and every poll that suggests that, you know, um, if there's war, uh, I don't know, 80% of the Germans don't want to join it. Well I I don't want to have war I don't want to keep my kids go to war that's actually why I advocate uh, deterrence defense and deterrence capabilities because I, I don't want to go to war I don't imagine uh, the communist China would make a real good PR show about the reasons for going to war and then sort of Taiwan is a and and people now know roughly equal much about Taiwan than they knew about Ukraine uh, and, and in all that theaters sort of, uh, you know, public mood can arise and then things fall in line. Uh, so it's, it, it, there, there are no sort of clear cut sort of this is public opinion and that's what we can do and that's not, that depends on the situation that depends on how the other side, um, uh, uh, behaves that depends on what your leaders put forward as alternative causes of action. And that depends then how rationally this is discussed. Uh, and as you know, for bad and for good, there's a huge margin of 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 playing that um but said if, if you want to have a uplifting story from for germany and lithuania and the efp uh i was in lithuania and i was tapped from the back with a guy and said and he asked me are you are you german I said, well I, I i work in berlin so <clears throat> if that counts uh, uh i might stand questions and answers that yeah no actually uh uh my my mother i'm come from a Jewish family and my mother lived uh through three different deportation camps and uh now she's so happy whenever she sees a German tank because that gives her the the the, the real knowledge that that this time we will not be alone uh and I was so uplifting you know um saying so much about history um, coming good being on the right side as well as uh your host society so um, I, I think it's underappreciated, actually, what the Bundeswehr does here, um, both in Germany and and a lot of abroad. And and the Bundeswehr is not too bad doing that. What they're doing.
0: And imagine if they had more to do that with, and imagine if they had the political support geared into the kind of political vision we're talking about before. So, thank you to all of our guests today for a fantastic discussion. Um, we started off by saying that um, the Titan vendor. Uh, depended on defence to a significant amount, that defence would be a key barometer through which the titan vendor Germany's sea change or or not in foreign policy, was to be judged. But I think one of the key messages coming out of our discussion today is that on so many levels, defence cannot be understood alone. Much like Germany cannot be understood alone, defence can't be understood alone. We have to see it in its wider societal context, historical in terms of why or why not it's valued, but also to understand the positive and negative roles it plays in Um, protecting
1: democratic society or failing to do so when deterrence fails. Absolutely. Um, That is all for this episode of Berlin Side Out. Uh, Thank you very much to our guests, Ben Hodges, Eileen Matla, and Gustav Gressel, and to you, our listeners. Uh, Stay tuned for our, our next episodes this season. They run until Christmas and we'll be looking at more key topics in German foreign and security policy and just where the country stands in international politics right now. Please join us for the rest of the season. In the meantime, if you liked us, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions or comments, come find us on Twitter at BCTalus for Ben, at Aaron G. Burnett for me, and DJAPEV. Uh, if you want to find out more about the topic, you can also find some recommended readings in our program notes, as well as the Twitter handles for our fantastic guests. Auf Wiedersehen from Berlin, and Tschüss!